We start off today, though, talking about a story we've talked about on this program. You might remember hearing about a music teacher in Surrey who was hospitalized after getting COVID-19. Well, we are pleased to say that teacher Darlene Lorenko is back home now, and she joins us now on the line to talk a bit more about what has happened. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. I'm glad to be here. Uh, how are you doing and how are you feeling? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling better than I was in the hospital. Um, it's quite an abrupt change coming home. Um, and, um, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not fully well yet. It's going to be an uphill battle, but I'm, I'm very happy to be home and very happy to be disconnected from all the machines and the oxygen. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I, I can hear it in your voice. It sounds like you're, you're obviously still recovering. So I really do appreciate uh, you taking some time to talk with us today. Uh, what was it like? So I, I know uh, you, you, we've talked a little bit. Uh, we've t- been talking about you a bit while you were in the hospital, uh, your your friends uh, and supporters, uh, all wishing the best for you, but also talking a little bit about the situation you were in as a music teacher at, at Cambridge. So what was it like teaching and knowing uh, that there were exposures, that there was this virus in the school? It, it, was, uh, it was concerning. It was frightening for me in my situation, because my situation is a little different than other classroom teachers. Um, my, my situation is similar to a librarian or um, to a lesser degree, a, a learning assistant teacher or a French teacher where we are exposed to several co- cohorts. And in my case, um, over 500 kids a week. I teach nine classes a day from kindergarten to a grade four or five split. Um, one class comes in, the next class goes out. There's, there's no time in between to really sanitize and there's no sink in a portable to clean. So I was naturally concerned from the beginning. And, and and also being a music teacher, from what we have been told by health officials, that's one of the activities as well that can be a, a, a spreader. Yes, we've had a lot of conversations about this at the beginning of the year with our music teachers. We have great music teachers in Surrey. Well, we were we were given the go-ahead to keep singing, and band was going to continue, although I am aware that many other provinces didn't allow that. Um, we, just, we just went with what information we were given. Um, and... I kept singing. <laughs> and did you feel ever feel like you mentioned in a portable where there wasn't uh, sink, there weren't sinks for hand washing? Did you feel unsafe doing this? Really, I I did. I totally did. Um, I I tried to advocate for maybe even having little laundry tubs put outside of the portables with a hose, just something to quickly wash up between classes. And they recommend that if you sneeze or cough or do anything, you should quickly wash your hands. Well, you can't do that when you're a, a hundred feet from the main building and you've got five-year-olds left behind in your in your space. So there is no practical way to keep clean. There's hand sanitizer, but we would empty that by the end of every day. Um, and you can only use hand sanitizer so much. And I'm a I'm an, a face toucher. Uh, I'm always touching my eyes, and so yeah, I'm I really think that a sink, an ability to wash for myself and for my students would have been a huge, it would have made a huge difference. 
Uh, and my guess is it's going to be a while before you go back uh, to teaching, but will you go back and are, are you looking forward to going back if, if it sounds like uh, if some things change? I know that things have, are, are changing. I know that my incredible colleagues are working so hard to try to sort things out at their own level, at our own level, you know, despite what we're, we're um, being uh, required to do. We're trying to go above and beyond. And, and it, it's, um, it's a work in progress. I personally don't know how I'm going to feel going back. I want to go back. I, I love teaching. I, I miss my kids already. Mm. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I know that I've been told I, I likely don't have immunity. <laughs> uh, so I think I'll, I'll still be frightened. I, I'll have to think about that a little bit and see if barriers come in or see what kind of changes come down the line. But I'm, I'm definitely at home for a few months trying to regain, excuse me, regain, <laughs> regain some strength and uh, even strength breathing. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit of what it was like? Like you said, you were in hospital, you were hooked up to a lot of machines. What was it like dealing, having COVID-19 and being in the hospital? Oh, it was frightening. Um, I, I, um, I went through emergency just a day after I was um, confirmed a, a positive and they sent me back home. Um, for a couple of days, I I really um, suffered at home. And when when I finally thought there, I can't carry on like this. We called an ambulance, and I was taken to emergency. I spent about eight hours in emergency, and then I was on a ward where they watched me carefully through the night, and I was failing. So they took me to ICU um, early in the wee hours of that next morning, and from there, I was sicker and sicker, requiring more and more oxygen. And I, I frankly was not conscious a lot of the time. Um, I, I was struggling, struggling to, to breathe, struggling to move. My entire body was racked with, with unthinkable pain. Um, but the breathing, of course, was the challenge, and that's what they're paying the most attention to. And it must have been frightening uh, going through that and getting worse and getting worse and not knowing. Uh, it sounds like, though, that, so you didn't have to be put on a ventilator. No, no, I didn't. Um, they put me through three different types of um, supplying me oxygen until they found one that, that uh, kept me stable. Uh, but I never had to be intubated, thank God. And uh, I, uh, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> And like you said, it'll be a few more months at least as you're on the mend. Um, there's a lot of people I know that that were they were hoping for this that that you would pull through, and thankfully uh, you have, and you're here to tell your story. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to share about what you've gone through? Well, I, I definitely would like to um, thank the nurses and therapists and everybody who took care of me. I want them to know that I. I see them and I see how hard they work and the struggles of not having enough supplies and not having uh, and having to work with so much layers of protection and not enough of them to meet all the needs of their patients in a timely manner. Um, I, I see them and I'm grateful for them. And it, it wasn't perfect. It was overcrowded and a lot of single rooms were doubled up. Um, 
But I, I want to give a big shout out to the to Surrey Memorial Hospital that that took care of me and and uh, got me safely back home. And I'd also love to give a shout out actually to my Cambridge Elementary community, um, my really hardworking, dedicated colleagues, the, the pack, and all the children and families that I adore, and the peacocks. I miss the peacocks too. <laughs> oh, yes. We've seen them many times. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for joining us. I know you're not still feeling, you're not feeling 100% uh, yet, but uh, we, we all hope that you continue and get back to 100% and eventually back to teaching. Uh, Darlene, Darlene Lorenko, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for calling. <laughs> all right. Take care and be safe. We were just speaking with Darlene Lorenko, a music teacher at Cambridge Elementary. She's now at home recovering after spending a couple of weeks in Surrey Memorial Hospital with COVID-19. Joining me now on the line is Jordan Tinney, the superintendent of the Surrey School District. Thanks so much for being with us. No worries. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, we were just chatting with Mrs. Lorenko, and uh, I know that Cambridge Elementary is set to reopen. What will be different when the school opens its doors again? Yeah, it was fantastic to hear hear her voice and to know she's recovering, so that's great. And um, what will be different will be determined largely by a team that is there at the school today. Uh, we have a group from Fraser Health and the district and our, our union partners in terms of walking through the school and doing a full health assessment, and then we'll debrief that, and then we'll do another one um, once the students are back in full session. But we're looking at, you know, anything that we can do to change practices or to look at what exactly happened at Cambridge and how we can improve things. Uh, Mrs. Lorenko talked about the fact she didn't actually feel safe, that the, that she didn't do anything wrong because as the rules were, she was allowed to be singing, to be teaching music. She was teaching various cohorts, uh, but she also mentioned how she was working in a portable and there was no way to sanitize, to even wash hands between groups. It seems like that could be something that could be or should be rectified. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we'll look at. You know, in Surrey, we have um, hundreds of portables and and getting kids access to hand washing and sanitizing in portables. We can put sanitizer in the portables and have students move to stations in the school. uh, But that's actually, you know, exactly one of the things we'll be looking at today. Right. But she said even with the sanitizer, by the end of the day, it was always done. Yeah, well, you know, and that's the piece around if the assessment goes in today and they say, hey, there's insufficient sanitizer or we need to have additional hand washing stations, whatever we need to do. I mean, that's why we're going to have the, the deep dive. You know, what what happened and how can we do things differently starting Monday for that school, knowing that, uh, you know, the protocols are in place across the entire district. So we also want to compare what, what are we finding out about schools where, where it isn't an issue or where there are no exposures. Is it just about the nature of transmission or is it about the the particular community. We don't know, but uh, we're trying to figure it out and make sure that we're doing everything we can. Right. Uh, has there been any insight to that? Because I think that is one of the big questions in that we've seen dozens of exposure notices at various Surrey schools, but it seemed that what happened at Cambridge was was more severe. Do we know why? Yeah, no, we don't, you know, and that's the, the the measures they put in place when you think about what happened when they declared the outbreak is it was really threefold, right? The schools closed for, for two weeks 
And then the next part is mass testing for everyone. And then the third part is self-isolation for two weeks. So my understanding from health is um, as a result of the mass testing, there's there's kind of two layers to it. You know, are people positive or negative right now? But uh, they, it, the testing includes genome testing. And they say when they get that done, they will be able to tell the full story. Because I mean, one of the questions I ask is, is is just that okay what what happened at that school and what can we learn from it because we have you know a neighboring school which is right there beside it basically goldstone park as an example basically same size same community goldstone park has had no exposures this year so what what happened at cambridge what can we learn and what can we do to make sure it doesn't ever happen again Uh, Is there anything being done for or have you heard of parents maybe that are wary and don't want to send their kids back to Cambridge and if there's uh, another plan or something else they can do? Oh, yeah. I mean, across the district and, you know, there are parents who are anxious about COVID in general and uh, a number of parents who have accessed our our blended program, our transition program. Um, I think for Cambridge in particular, we'll watch to see what attendance looks like uh, on on the first few days back. And and that will really be the indicator. I know that right up until the school closed, attendance at the school was still, um, you know, they would probably be around 100, 150 absent students a day. But that means that means you've got 600 students still attending. So that's the measure I look for is, OK, how many students come back on opening day and what do the first few days look like? And knowing the number of exposures we have, how will the school and the community respond if there's another exposure, say, you know, one or two weeks from now? Well, and that's, I think, the question on a lot of parents' minds is looking at the numbers and with what happens, are there still discussions or any plans as far as an early break for Christmas or an extension of the break? Uh, I mean, those wouldn't be district conversations. That would be, I think today we'll find out who all the ministers are and we'll look to our Minister of Education and to the Provincial Health Authority if there's going to be any change around the, the break times. All right. And and like we said about the numbers, are you confident with, with what's being done right now as far as uh, the assessments, the exposure notice, notices when they go out and keeping people informed? Well, I think we would always want them faster. I mean, the, you know, uh, ideally you would know immediately, but that's just not the way it works, right? Like if you have symptoms and then you wait two or three days or four days to get tested and then it takes a day to turn around the test, then you get your result and then you get a letter it looks to people like that that five-day gap looks like a, a delay when, in fact, that's some of that is just the human part. But there are actual delays in getting it. So um, I heard, if I heard uh, Minister Adrian Dix yesterday correctly, uh, you know, uh, hiring over 200 additional tracers, that's, that's music to my ears as far as making sure we get the notices as quickly as we can. All right. Uh, Jordan Tinney, thank you so much. I know you're very busy. So thank you so much for taking some time with us today. No worries. Happy to be here. You take care. Thanks for being with us today. Well, there are some concerns about social media, especially various platforms where there isn't a lot of fact checking, perhaps, and that conspiracy theories can not only be put forward, they can flourish. That becomes even heightened when there is the perception that politicians are perhaps perpetuating those conspiracy theories. And joining me now to talk a bit more about that is Rachel Gilmore, a Global News national online journalist who has written about this. Rachel, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It is an interesting one because it really shows how somebody might retweet something or share something without realizing that one hashtag or one phrase might actually lead to or might actually refer to something completely different. Yeah, it kind of speaks to how much of a landmine the uh, social media landscape is these days. You know, you try to 
just kind of run through unscathed, but there's so many um, kind of terms or words that have taken on new life in the age of social media as they kind of um, blossom into conspiracy theories. And I think that that's uh, one of the things that we're seeing here where terminology that, uh, you know, politicians might not have necessarily seen as being associated with a massive conspiracy theory, in effect was, and uh, quite a few conspiracy theorists sort of see these politicians using the words and then latch on to it as uh, further evidence that their beliefs, which are baseless, are in fact the reality. So break it down for us if you can. If somebody is to see the hashtag Stop the Great Reset or anything that refers to the Great Reset, what is that linked to? So it actually started out as something that could probably be best described as, if anything, boring. (laughs) Um, So the World Economic Forum uh, came up with this idea that, you know, the um, pandemic sort of presents opportunity to stop and take a look at the inequalities that have been laid bare as we've been going through this uh, unprecedented time and to kind of attack and address those inequalities. So they wanted to look at issues like global poverty, climate change, all the greatest hits of the uh, the major issues of our time that you hear a lot of world leaders touching on. Um, so those conversations, you know, they had people from the UN, they had royalty, they had world leaders all participating in this. Um, and unfortunately, that appeared to have ticked a lot of boxes for conspiracy theorists who saw this group of global elites, if you will, um, discussing this concept of a reset or reimagining of society. And while it wasn't a nefarious plot and the goals were, um, again, if anything, this very standard uh, policy objectives that you come across as a political reporter fairly often. um, And they instead viewed it as this thing that it was not, which they, they say that the global elite are trying to reimagine society to benefit the wealthy and their friends or to impose a sort of socialism. And some of them even go so far as to say that the uh, pandemic was intentionally uh, planned <laughs> to hmm. achieve those ends. So that is absolutely baseless and not true. Um, but unfortunately, the sort of uh, nature of the conversation has really shifted in that direction where a lot of the hashtags tie into that conspiracy theory and, you know, broader discussions that can kind of go down a few rabbit holes of uh, various other conspiracy theories as well. And so is, is one of the issues then that it gives them kind of, kind of uh, some kind of credibility when we see conservative MP Pierre Polyev uh, retweeting something that has that hashtag. Uh, he says he didn't men- mean it as any kind of conspiracy theory. He was criticizing the prime minister. But do the, the people behind the conspiracy theories, I would imagine, take that to be, oh, well, this makes it more credible. So that's sort of the issue that the experts I spoke to really highlighted. They said that when politicians, um, you know, use this terminology, even totally with, you know, very legitimate, very normal (laughs) goals, um, you know, the opposition often criticizes the government. It's just what they do. And it's very possible that that's all that Pierre Polyev set out to do with his tweets. But, um, you know, the conspiracy theorists see this and they misinterpret it or they take it to be a kind of affirmation of their own understanding of the world, which is skewed and it's not tied to reality. And it's unfortunate because, you know, um, these people in these positions of power um, can, they kind of have this power to unknowingly um, 
cause these sorts of uh, misinterpretations by, you know, accidentally stepping into a world that they didn't even know existed necessarily. So it's, it's a bit fraught. And I think that a lot of the um, conspiracy theorists are just so they're reading everything through a very different lens. And I think that that's something that the ex- experts said that politicians should work to be aware of is just to be aware of what major conspiracy theories are floating around and to uh, try to avoid using the, the big loaded terms that have taken on these meanings that aren't necessarily associated with the reality of what they represent. Which can be tricky, too, because it could be something that's changing all the time in that, uh, I guess, people would know now, maybe stay away from the word reset or uh, what is the other phrase? Build back better seems to be a loaded phrase as well. Yeah, and it's kind of a difficulty, right? Um, You know, one thing that the experts kept saying, you know, they kind of double barrel it where they'd say, yeah, politicians need to be careful that they're not using the same language as a conspiracy theory. But at the same time, there are so many out there that it's kind of difficult to um, expect politicians to know when they might be stepping into a hornet's nest here, you know? So um, that's kind of a difficulty. Like Trudeau spoke at the UN in September, and he used the terminology of the Great Reset. And that just set off a firestorm. There were thousands of tweets where people said, oh, look, he's using all the keywords. He's affirming that this is happening. And, you know, he clearly wasn't if you watch the video in context. But the difficulty is is that some people read this through such a different lens and take things out of context. And it really is a difficult one for, um, you know, any person to navigate. So um, it's a tough tough issue. Uh, so, so what advice the experts that you talked to, uh, other than not using these phrases, but I think there is going to be uh, slip ups and, and probably in many cases, unknowingly, somebody is going to use a phrase that does that exact same thing and sets off another uh, whirlwind of reaction and people saying, oh, look, look what this person is saying. Uh, do they say ignore it uh, if you can't 100 percent stop using these words or if the words change? Well, I think that um, they had a few different pieces of advice when I spoke to the experts. On the one hand, they said that um, individuals should work to empower themselves by just kind of critically questioning um, all the material that they come across. But of course, that's more for people like you and me who are navigating Twitter and see these tweets. Um, For the people who are doing the tweeting um, and are in these positions of power, I I mean, it's such a a difficult issue. But one thing that um, one expert said to me is in this instance, for example, where Pierre Polyev may not have been aware that this conspiracy theory was out there and that he was, uh, you know, he may have inadvertently sort of um, affirmed it in the minds of some people who may have misinterpreted his his tweet. Um, They said that he could then go back and say, this is what I was referring to. And it wasn't the conspiracy theory. It was a critique of this and this and this. And then that can kind of take some of the wind out of the sail. So I think that, you know, it's more of a question of if it starts to kind of snowball, um, these politicians and, you know, major figures can take their um, the opportunity to then go back and correct it. So it's a bit more reactive as opposed to proactive because it is, I think it's a bit hard to keep on top of. But, you know, um, for the most part, try to stay away if you already know about the conspiracy theory. And if you accidentally step on the hornet's nest, do your best to uh, treat the wound and uh, <laughs> clarify. <laughs> All right. Good advice. Uh, Rachel, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Jill.
Well, we've been talking a lot today about vaccines, about when Canadians might have access to vaccines and what that might look like. So let's bring in Dr. Srinivas Murthy, a clinical associate professor at the Department of Pediatrics in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Good afternoon, Jill. What are your thoughts on, on what we're hearing now as far as vaccines, where they are going to be administered first around the world? We know it's not going to be Canada. Uh, now being told that uh, Health Canada uh, could be able to fast track approval, then we might see vaccines here. What are your thoughts on how this is playing out? Sure. And so like approval is different than having access. And so I'm excited to see that Health Canada is looking closely at the applications and then um, in the next period of time, we'll have an approval in place. The, the bigger question is when will um, Canadians have access to that vaccine? Um, and I guess sort of more broadly speaking, this is sort of a predictable problem given the number of countries trying to get access to this product that everyone wants. Um, and I sort of equate it to the toilet paper fiascos back in March where we all wanted lots and we didn't necessarily need it. And if there was a way of coordinating that process so that every country got what they need, um, this could be done in a sort of a more efficient way. Um, unfortunately, um, the country's coordinations didn't really line up necessarily, and it'll be more of a, a race to the product rather than a, a sharing of the product. Uh, has there been an example of that done in the past or where we've seen perhaps better cooperation? Uh, so there is a model for this right now, um, and it's sort of facilitated by the WHO and the Gates Foundation and a number of different organizations where all of the vaccine manufacturers are pooling their resources and basically sharing it across the world, primarily for low-income countries, but high-income countries can participate also, and it would be coordinated and distributed so that people who needed it the most, healthcare workers, vulnerable populations, would get it first. Um, but at the same time, bigger countries are saying, we also want our own vaccine as well. And so the companies are preferentially supplying that before they're supplying the, the larger pool. And the situation we're in right now is sort of expected in that regard. Right. And that would be why we're seeing that residents in, say, the United States and the UK would get first crack at it. Correct. Exactly. Uh, so, so do you think that is there a problem with that in that even in Canada's case, so we're hearing from the deputy health uh, officer, uh, the public health officer, uh, that it, that when it is available for Canadians, it is going to be rolled out the most vulnerable of uh, those who are considered, I think, frontline workers and people who need it first. Uh, but does that I guess, is that little comfort to given that we still don't know when we might get it? I, I, I guess I, I definitely agree that rolling it out to the vulnerable and healthcare workers is, is the right approach. I sort of disagree with getting other countries more fully vaccinated, namely the United States and the United Kingdom, um, getting everyone vaccinated before getting other countries to a place where healthcare workers and um, vulnerable populations can be vaccinated. So I think that's more the issue rather than um, Canada having some of it or not. And, and I guess the argument being that if you are a country that manufactures the virus, what, what kind of a response would you get from residents if some of the population is vaccinated and then they start shipping the vaccine elsewhere before more people get vaccinated? Yeah, no, it's totally a fair point. And it's a difficult policy um, balance to walk. Um, but I think everyone since the beginning of this outbreak has sort of messaged that we can't really solve this pandemic um, until we solve it everywhere. Um, and even if you vaccinate everyone in one place, you still won't have a fixed solution. And even people have done sort of the science and modeling about the fastest way of reducing deaths around the world, and that is through sort of a, a distributed mechanism where the most vulnerable people are vaccinated first everywhere, and then it's scaled up to everybody else. Admittedly, that's 
challenging politically because that's a, a step beyond what people expect. People want things and want things now. Um, but it's sort of the best way of getting this outbreak under control quickly. And what about the the numbers themselves? And that if we look at the population of Canada, what are we around 37 million people? So when we look at the numbers of, of doses that have been ordered, uh, the last number I saw was uh, that they have contracts for 194 million with options to increase that to 414 million. I mean, it, even if everybody needs the double dose, does that seem like a lot to go like, right out of the gate? Yeah, and so Canada has done one thing, which is sort of hedge their bets on all of the manufacturers and buying basically everything they can so that they do have sort of lots of supply. The challenge is the timing of that supply. And so I think by in a couple of years, we'll probably have access to all of those doses. Um, but we don't probably need all of those doses. And what we're going to do with all of those doses, both in the short term and long term, is still unclear from the federal government. Are they going to donate it to this pooled approach? Are they going to save it for a future um, who knows? We'll, we'll have to see what the government said on that. Uh, because we still don't know either with the, the three different types of vaccine or the different uh, the different one that had to be under with the minus 70, which obviously there were yep. some issues with that, how it's being stored, uh, the life of the vaccine. I, I would imagine those are still questions that you couldn't be doing this saying, oh, well, we'll keep it in the freezer for 10 years and, and see what it's like then. Yeah, exactly. And so like the three ones that are currently sort of um, in the press right now and a couple of more are coming down the pipeline in the next few months. Um, we'll learn about exactly which one is sort of the best for Canadians and the best for the world. And probably they're all going to have their relative benefits, some more effective, some easier to distribute, some cheaper and so on, that we're going to have to make some uh, priority setting processes to decide who gets what. Uh, you mentioned, too, that the, the way we're going to get this virus, the way that we're going to get, get control is, is when everybody buys in and everybody gets the vaccine. I've been hearing a lot. I've seen news reports and hearing from people. And I guess because it's a new vaccine, uh, these aren't anti-vaxxers. These aren't people who think there's anything malicious going on, but, but people who don't want to be at the front of the line and want to take more of a wait and see approach. Uh, what are the issues with that? Like, there's no necessary issue. I think like, everyone, like, there's going to be deployment in sequence, and some people will be at the beginning of the line, some people will be later on, and there's nothing wrong necessarily in sort of taking some caution. I do sort of want to emphasize that the number of people who have already received these vaccines have been on the tens of thousands of people around the world, and these clinical trials are designed to detect um, exactly the concerns that people have. And so well, once we see that data, and we want our regulators to see that data. They'll have more confidence in sort of their ability to get that vaccine and get it out safely. Um, and so while it, right now at this second, I can't necessarily state with confidence that these vaccines are safe. As the next few weeks and the data emerges and our regulators see the data and we see the data, um, we'll ha- obviously have more confidence in it. And when we hear stories like the story out today of the the first one, the AstraZeneca, that now didn't appear to be or doesn't appear to be as effective as the first outcome uh, in the first study, saying that they're going to do additional trials. So, I mean, is the is the key there be transparent with people, let people know this is all a part of vaccine development and it's not something to be afraid of? Yeah, exactly. I think like trusting people, and I think this whole outbreak has taught us that you really have to trust people and sort of talk them through things and tell them what you know and don't know. And then you'll eventually get them on your side if you're credible. Um, and I think this vaccine is hopefully going to go through that process as well. Transparency, they, they, they found some deficiencies in their, in their trial design, and they're going to continue to accumulate more data to convince people that it's safe. And that's the appropriate response um, to get as much safety and effectiveness data as possible.
And so just to kind of circle back to where Canada, I guess, sits in the lineup with having secured doses, still having to go through, like you said, approval is not the same as having it and we're going to start injecting it into people's arms. Is Canada at a disadvantage then because we don't manufacture our own vaccine and will be behind those other countries? Yeah, no question. I think having the capacity to manufacture high-scale pharmaceutical products is something that Canada lacks right now. Funding was dedicated to that back in March and April, and then they're, they're still scaling up the manufacturing capacity and don't really have that up and running yet. And so no question, it's a disadvantage, and it's something that Canada should be working on going forward. I think it's a, it's a growth industry for Canada, and you can see it as a stimulus, you can see it as an investment in science, you can see it as an investment in public health. Is that something, too, if we're scaling up the manufacturing side, we tend to look at everything being fast-tracked to, to respond to this pandemic. Is that something that could also be fast-tracked? Like it's, it's, it's a matter of building, basically. And so can they build the building fast enough that reach appropriate standards? And so I can't necessarily say they can build faster. Ideally, they would have built, been built before this whole outbreak and it happened. Well, there have been a lot of questions about what exactly is being done as far as the provincial approach here in B.C. compared to the provincial approach in other places in this country in bending that curve back down and whether or not there should be a national approach and whether what we're doing is the best course of action. Well, yesterday, Dr. Ann Collins, who's the president of the Canadian Medical Association, met with our federal health minister to talk about that. And Dr. Ann Collins joins me on the Line now. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I know that you, that you met with the federal health minister. I know the CMA has written a letter as well. What are your main concerns with what you're seeing right now in the fight against COVID-19? Well, what we're seeing is that what's happening in many areas of the country does not appear to be working. And so there are areas where we have huge numbers of new COVID-19 cases. And sadly, deaths accompanying those. So what we're calling for is there, there need to be more um, stringent and sustained measures to get those numbers down. Get them down to a level where uh, contact uh, tracers and testing can, can once again be effective in helping to contain this virus. And what would you suggest then uh, a few things that could be done that aren't being done now? Well, again, it's to, to say that um, we need to have a, a more coordinated, we're seeing patchwork um, approaches to this across the country. We're seeing Canadians being confused by messaging. And so what we're calling for is for governments at all levels to come together and to, so that we can have a consistent approach to this so that Canadians know we need to double down on this. We are way behind this virus right now in many parts of this country, and it's stressing our health care system in many areas. Uh, beds are filling up, ICU beds are filling up, and staff, those health care providers that have been fighting this for 260 days now, they're tired. So we've got lots of challenges here that we're not quite addressing to get the numbers down so that we can manage this. Uh, do you think then, it, should it be more of a targeted approach in that we know which areas, if we look at, uh, say, the province of BC, we know which areas have the highest numbers, uh, but we do tend to do it as a province-wide uh, approach to it. 
Well, we know that there's not a one-size-fits-all necessarily to this, but where those numbers are high, those strategies that that work, and, and that's where we have to rely on our public health uh, experts. They've been studying this virus since the very beginning. They have the science. They have the evidence. That's where we have to listen to them and and implement what they say will work. It's it's to get it contained, to get it controlled. Uh, I know in the letter that you uh, gave uh, out as well, the open letter, you talk a bit about p- pandemic fatigue, which I think is something that uh, I would agree with you, that many people are suffering. And it is frustrating when then you see the numbers uh, released on a daily basis uh, that it's not uh, going in the right direction. How do you suggest though we deal with people that are dealing with pandemic fatigue? We're all fatigued. We all want this to be over. No, nobody wants to be here, and nobody wants to be here, certainly, at this time of the year, and what that means going forward over the next few weeks. So we just need to keep going back to where we were. If we can recapture some of that energy that we had last spring, this pandemic was not novel then. I'll give you that. But we buckled down. We stayed home. We... we weren't wearing masks then, but certainly we need to wear a mask now. We were washing our hands, but we were we were using that line, we are all in this together, and we're still all in this together for however long it's going to take to get us out of it. Um, and we just all have to remember that lives, other lives depend upon what we do. And to keep delivering that message like you're doing here this afternoon as much as we can. And do you think, too, though, it's also a, a sense of there is the idea of, of a, a, that, yes, lives are being lost, lives are at stake, but there also seems to be, well, and there is attention being paid to our economy, to our, our livelihoods, to, to what, if we lock everything down and stop everything, what does that life look like, say, six months to a year down the road? I mean, absolutely, and and the two are not mutually exclusive, right? We, we need to, to have a healthy economy. We have to have healthy Canadians, and we have to have a healthy health care system as well. And if we don't contain this, we won't have that, and we'll have further delays in, in elective treatments, further delays in urgent treatments, further delays in, in diagnoses. So we have to, to, to remember that we, we need to keep Canadians healthy and safe in order to have a healthy economy. We're going to get through this. As Dr. Tam said, there's never been a pandemic that hasn't ended. But how long it's going to take really much depends very much on what we do now. Uh, You spoke with the Federal Health Minister, Patty Haidu, to talk about this. What kind of a response did you get? We had a productive meeting. We share the same goals, and that is to, to, to protect Canadians, to keep them healthy. Um, and, and, you know, she, too, is very cognizant of the uh, stress that this is having on health care uh, providers and the system. And, you know, we, we're all on the same page in terms of getting the message out there that we need to work together on this.
what do you think could be uh, the, the what what should people be doing or what is in, in the power of people uh, rather than wait, say, for more restrictions or more orders to come from health officials? What could people be doing uh, above and beyond what they are doing now? That's a great question. And we're tired of hearing it. But I'm going to say it again. It's wear your mask, wash your hands. And right now, what we're seeing all across the country, I live in the Atlantic bubble that has just burst because we've not been keeping our contact numbers down. We need to to really follow the restrictions where they've been put in place. And if there haven't been restrictions put in place, really have a good hard look at how many contacts you have and reduce that as much as you can. That all will help in the containment and suppression of this virus. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Atlantic bubble and and where you're based, because I think that is something, too, that people looked at and looked at it with with admiration, really, that it worked so well. And it seemed uh, very strict at the time. And it's it seemed uh, aggressive. And maybe even to some people, it seemed over the top. Uh, So what is what are the thoughts now with the, the bursting of that bubble? Well, this has not come It's disappointing, no question, but it's not really surprising. As our medical officers of health here in the Atlantic region kept reminding us day in and day out, you know, since March, COVID is still amongst us. And across our border, New Brunswick is the entryway border-wise to Atlantic Canada, there are still, yesterday there were 3,000 vehicles that came into the province, essential workers, essential delivery, essential, you know, whatever, to, to continue to, to feed people here, for one thing. So, so COVID found its way in. It found its way in on airplanes. That's not surprising. And so what, what has worked well is that the public health and, and governments have worked well together to enforce measures quickly. And so hopefully... Where I live just went to an orange level today. It's disappointing, but we need to do it to get things under control. Uh, And what do you think about the coloured warning systems and those zones and the messaging in general? Has it been clear enough or or do you think that can be improved upon as well? I think communication all the way around can be improved. It is what it is right now, so I just really encourage people to to know what it means in your particular area. Yes, it's diverse. It's diverse across the country. I shouldn't even use the word orange because that might mean something different somewhere else. So just follow what the guidelines and the restrictions are in your local area. Uh, we started this show today speaking with a music teacher here in BC who was just recently released from hospital. She was in there for two weeks after contracting COVID-19 at a school. Uh, she talked about how much uh, she appreciated the nurses and doctors and healthcare workers, but she also mentioned that she noticed how stressed they were and how they were working with, you know, working with everything they had, but it, it seemed like they could always use more, whether it was PPE or, or more support. Uh, we've gone from where people were banging pots and pans every day at seven. Um, not, I, I think most neighborhoods aren't doing that anymore. Do you think people need to be reminded as well of what it means? Because I mean, we could say to, to somebody, the ICU is full, but that doesn't really mean anything to, to somebody if you've never seen that or, or understand what that means. Yeah. So a full ICU, the, the most important question there is that the ICU is full. And so where does the next patient go that needs 
ICU. You know, I think people have to think about that. Now, in many cases, you know, they have expanded ICU capacity by using recovery rooms and other areas of the hospital. But every time you close down or limit a part of a hospital, a service that would otherwise be given in that bed, say, having your hip replaced or your knee replaced, that's not going to happen. So there are Canadians out there who are living with great pain, loss of mobility, trying to manage chronic pain. They're not going to get their hip or knee done as long as this continues. There's that strong likelihood that all of those procedures that were were slowed down or cut out during the first wave of the pandemic, that's going to happen again. So it puts it that kind of, you may never be in an ICU, I hope you never are, but the whole process will may have a downstream effect on other healthcare services. And finally, do you see us turning the corner when a vaccine is available, or do you think that there will be other milestones as far as maybe expanded rapid testing or some other measures that will be put in place in addition to all of the measures that people are taking to help us get that get the numbers back down? Yeah, so, so vaccines are hopeful. I call them sort of our light at the end of the tum- tunnel, but they're a ways away. And you still need to have control in order, you have to remember to deliver a vaccine, um, you know, you, you have to bring people in. So we still have to work on the control, containment, and suppression part of the virus. And anything that will help effective testing and tracing, that's still, that's the backbone of uh, public health's way to control any viral um, illness. Uh, so, so we need to to keep focused on that for now. Be hopeful about the vaccines, but it's get the numbers down, test, trace, and isolate, and and let's be ready for vaccine rollout. All right, Dr. Collins, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for having me.